So, Philippians, go ahead and open up the book of Philippians. We started last week the series on common joy, uh, looking at the book of Philippians. We'll be here throughout the, the entirety of September. And this morning we're going to um, continue unpacking chapter 1. Uh, Philippians is the book of joy. And, and we need to understand that it's not joy as defined by the world's standards or by worldly wisdom. It's an uncommon joy. And it's uncommon because it focuses on living for others, Jesus and his people, rather than living for ourselves. We just heard a lot of, about that. Uh, putting ourselves back to put others before us. Our faith, the Christian faith, is not a self-serving faith. Christians are not to be people who are self-serving people. Even though that's exactly what the world tells us we should be. We should be people who take care of ourselves, build our self-esteem, um, build our own wealth, our own priorities, and focus on ourselves before and above any and everyone else. The life of the Christian Mirroring the life of Christ is completely opposite of that. The Christian life should be a life that is joy-filled. You're going to notice a theme throughout each week of September as we work through this series. Every sermon has the title, A Joy-Filled, and then whatever the word to follow will be. Today, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a joy-filled messenger. And what I want us to keep in the forefront of our minds as we work through the latter half of chapter 1 of Philippians is this, that a joy-filled messenger exists to advance the gospel of Jesus as a reflection of Jesus because we know that He is the only true hope. So I want to pray for us, and we will just dive straight in. Our Father, we thank you again for this time we have together to be able to open your word, to sing your word, to hear of the work that's being done in your name. And now as we come to this portion of our gathering where we open your word together, we pray that you would bless the reading of it, that you would speak through the Holy Spirit in power, so that your word would take root into each and every one of our lives. And just because we're talking about joy and being filled with joy, that doesn't mean that we won't have hardships or won't labor in times of great trials and tribulations. It just means that we have something as the base of all of those things, and that's the joy we find in Christ. So Father, continue to remind us of that truth. Remind us of the promises that we see in your word. Would you speak through the work of your spirit to us this morning? Would you make it clear through your word that it is not just me as the paid pastor who is the messenger of the word, but it's each and every one of us that have submitted and surrendered to salvation in Christ. We are all to be messengers of the good news of Jesus. So, Father, would you work during this time? Would you receive glory in it? 
And would you fill us with great joy? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A joy-filled messenger. As we begin to look at verses 12 through 30, the very first point we come to realize is that a joy-filled messenger exists to advance the gospel. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul, writing, wanting us to know that whatever has happened to him has served to advance the gospel, which means we are to advance the gospel regardless of our circumstances. God's mission is to save his people through the work of his son Jesus, and that mission will be accomplished with or without us. The work has already been done to save. We have, by his grace, been called to be a part of that mission. And Paul, writing, reminds us that it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, we are his messengers called by him, by his grace, and for his glory to advance the gospel. We've talked about it many times before, how the gospel has advanced throughout the New Testament church. A couple years ago, we spent some time in the book of Acts, and we saw how the gospel started in going forth in Peter, with Peter preaching at Pentecost, and how it led to the planting of churches all the way down until us here at New City. We saw how God had pointed all of those paths into place. And so Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, is reminding them that what has happened to me, and in case you forgot, Paul is in prison. He's saying, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Seems kind of backwards. Most people probably wouldn't say that it is advancing the gospel when they're put in prison, but it actually has. And we'll unpack that a little bit. He goes on in verse 13, he says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Our life situations, our past, our present, our future, they are all a gift from God to magnify Him by proclaiming His good news. And Paul is basically letting them know that just because I've been put in prison, it doesn't stop the work of God. Christ is building His church and He will build His church and there is nothing that can stop that. And by grace, we have been called to be a part of that. Does He need us? No. But He graciously chooses to use us to proclaim His good news. You ever heard the saying, one monkey don't stop no show? God's going to build His church. And he promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when we hear the bad news of this pastor falling or this church imploding or or Christianity going down, it's not happening. Christ will build his church and it will continue on. We all hear stories all the time of people who are power hungry or, or want to be in control. So they do everything within their power to cripple the church so that they can remain powerful. That doesn't stop the kingdom of God. It's pretty foolish to act that way because we 
assume that our doings make or break God's kingdom. God is sovereign beyond our imagination. And so what Paul is doing is he's, again, reminding them of the situation that he is in, in prison, in Rome. But the gospel is continually advancing. And he's saying it's advancing because of Christ. And what we see happening here is that other Christians are then emboldened by the relentless joy and the message of Paul. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Again, uncommon joy. If the the one who we set under was leading us in the charge of proclaiming the gospel, the one we look forward or look towards as um, a a father in the faith, if, if he gets put in prison, it would only make sense by worldly wisdom that wisdom that that would cripple us. That that would want to shut us down. But Paul is saying the opposite is actually true. That because he has been put in prison, the gospel taken root into these uh, Philippian Christians is actually emboldening them to go forward with the gospel without fear. So then, realizing their true purpose is God's glory in the advancement of the gospel... Other Christians are then kind of set ablaze. The snowball effect begins to happen. They are encouraged by Paul's joy, even though he's in Roman prison. They are encouraged that the the gospel is not being stopped because they imprisoned one guy. And it just gives them even more boldness and more readiness to go forward with the good news of Jesus. And I think one of the temptations for us is to say, yeah, but that is a little different because we didn't have, like, we're not there with Paul. But we have the same example. We have the same motivation. Last week we looked at a passage, and we're going to look back at that passage again, where Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is way before he ever was put into the Roman prison where he wrote the book of Philippians, the letter to the church of Philippi. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 6, we read this. Paul, writing to Timothy, training him, preparing him for ministry, says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, not of me, his prisoner. This was one of the previous times Paul was in prison. But share in suffering for the gospel, the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
we have the best news imaginable. The news that we are completely hopeless, but in Christ we have hope. That we are completely set apart from God, no hope of gaining acceptance back into His kingdom, except, Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in love and great in mercy, has made us away by grace we have been saved. We have the greatest message imaginable. And we also have history to prove that it doesn't matter what happens. We sang a song, the martyrs conquered, though they lived and died, they conquered. The message of the gospel doesn't stop. No oppression can stop the advancement of God's kingdom. No amount of attack or persecution will thwart God's message going forward. And Paul is reminding these Christians that that should be something that encourages us. That regardless of our circumstances, we go forward. We don't stop. But he also is reminding them this, that as they're going forward, advancing the gospel, proclaiming the message of the gospel, they need to be aware of false teachers. Look at verse 15 and following. So some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that, in that I rejoice. You need to understand this, that not all who claim to be preachers or messengers of the gospel are messengers of the gospel, not the gospel of Jesus. If the message isn't clearly rooted in Scripture, it's not biblical. We should analyze everything we hear and read through the lens of Scripture. That needs to be our filter. God's Word is sufficient it's inerrant. It's infallible. It is our standard. We saw through the Protestant Reformation, we, we, we know it's much is made of we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and kudos to that. I don't object to that at all. You know that. But I think the one tenet of the Protestant Reformation that sometimes gets overlooked is the idea of sola scriptura, or the, by scripture alone. That the scripture alone is our final authority. We're not looking to other sources or other people as our authority or our mediator. The scripture, as a mediator, the scripture says that there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given his word through the pages of scripture to lead us, to guide us, and to give us hope. And our world is full of wolves in sheep's clothing that carry a good appearance. They sound good. They come across as having a good message. But it's not the gospel. And so Paul is in instructing them and he's encouraging them. And then he goes into verse 18 and he says, But what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In other words, he's saying, so what really matters? The advance of the gospel. Paul has decided to rejoice in the message going forth. 
even if their motives are wrong, he's, he's hoping that there's truth in the message and that God will somehow use it. As I said before, one monkey don't stop, no show. There are a lot of people who preach a false message, but God is gracious in working through that. We should stand firm on the word of God. We should believe wholeheartedly in the word of God and rest in its sufficiency for all of life. It is our one true foundation. A joy-filled messenger exists to advance the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. The joy-filled messenger is hopeful in Christ. How? Look at verse 18b, starting in that next section. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is rejoicing in the unknown, right? His great desire is to see the gospel advance to the ends of the earth for God's glory and the good of others. And he is rejoicing when that happens. And and, and notice this, that he is rejoicing even though he has an uncertain immediate future. Again, he is a Roman prisoner. We, we kind of joked about this last week. We're not talking about a prisoner as in today's terms of prison. We're talking about Roman prisoners. No knowledge of what his case is. No knowledge of whether or not he's going to live through the day. Probably not fed well. I can assure you the conditions were not good. And yet Paul is full of rejoicing. And he's rejoicing at the message of the gospel going forward. That's his hope. That's his desire. Even though he doesn't know what his future holds, he knows that God will build his church. And we know that because of hope, his hope of deliverance isn't as much in the physical delivering from prison as it is in the spiritual. His hope is in the living God. His security is in God and God alone. And he knows that God will vindicate him on the last day. Likewise, our security is in God, and we know that God will vindicate us on the last day. Those who trust in Jesus are saved and secure. He said in Philippians 1, a little earlier in verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who seeks and saves. It is God who works the message of salvation. It is God through his death, his resurrection that accomplishes salvation for his people. So the reality is, is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our salvation is secure. How? Because it's not any work on our own. We're not checking boxes so that we can receive the merit and favor of God. We are doing the work of God because God has saved us by His grace and for His glory. And out of gratitude and thankfulness, we go forward, advancing the message of God because our hope is in Christ. And that gives us an unshakable hope. Because our hope is not in ourselves, it's not in our circumstances, it's not in our church. It's not in the people around us. It's not in our relationships. It's not in our ministries. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's this gospel that has fueled Paul and it has filled 
Paul, and he is full of courage to continue his work as a messenger of Jesus. Notice verse 20. I want to back up and read the whole thing because it's commas and I don't want us to get lost in what he's saying. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Again, he knows that when his time on earth comes, he will stand before God and be welcomed and entered in as a faithful servant. And he goes on, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And a verse that we all know pretty well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. because of the assurance Paul has in Jesus, he has resigned his life completely to the leading of God. Whether that be life or by death, does not matter to him. He has resigned himself completely to Christ. And he has come to the point of his life where he is so overjoyed with the gift of salvation through Jesus that he is willing to die as his messenger. You know, we, we live in a time and in a society where people are very vocal about what they stand for. Or at least outside of the church, they're vocal for what they stand for. They will riot and they will fuss and they will make social media posts. But I wonder, if it really came down to it, would folks be willing to die for those causes? In some cases, they are. But for the Christian, the answer should be a resounding yes. Throughout the centuries, people have given their life for the advancement of the gospel. Because their hope is in Christ. Their life was secure in the work of God through Jesus. And Paul is at this place in his life where he is willing to die. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I wonder if we are so overjoyed with the work of God in saving us that we would be willing to die if it came down to that. And that doesn't simply just mean physical death, right? We're not talking about the life coming from our body either. I mean, I mean, that's part of it. But would we be willing to die to ourselves, to our hopes, to our dreams, to our American dream? The reality is this, guys, that if there is anything in your life that you hold so dear as to not want heaven, That is your God. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Could you honestly say at this very moment, if Christ chose to return, that you wouldn't want anything else? And that's a hard question to ask. Because we love our families, we love our spouses, we love the opportunities, we love our children. 
And if, and if it come down to at this very moment, you choose enter into eternal glory or remain because you don't want to miss your wife and your kids or your job or your whatever. What would the answer be? And I want us to think about that. Because we assume the answer is yes, like we want to go like immediately to heaven, right? But is that the real answer? Paul is saying... Nothing in this world is more important to me than being in your presence. We've probably all heard older Christians make this comment, come Lord Jesus. You don't hear it as much now. And I think some of that is because we're so comfortable in what we have and what we can attain that we've lost what it means to only have Jesus. If that makes sense. And our hope is that Christ would become so rich of a treasure to us that nothing would impede on his call and his desire for our lives. A joy-filled messenger has his or her sights set on the everlasting God. Not on our families, not on our careers, not on our hobbies, our teams. Even though there's a real possibility the Falcons can win the Super Bowl, the Dolphs can win the national championship and the Braves can win the World Series all in one year. That's what I'm holding on to hope for. And Hawks not yet getting there. Oh, and the United. We could go for a, a repeat. Those things pale in comparison to what it can mean to truly know Christ. And yet, those are little examples of how our hearts are crafted. I saw an interesting comment this morning from a Facebook friend who said that more fathers will catechize their children, teach their children about their football teams today than they ever will uh, the gospel of Jesus in their lives. In one day, there's a lot of truth to that. And it doesn't have to be football, because I know not everybody here is football fans. It doesn't even have to be sports. It can be outdoors, or it could be politics, or it could be whatever, education. But a joy-filled messenger has his or her sight set on the everlasting God, above anything else. And so I want to ask this question, what happens when we realize the true purpose of our existence? And we realize that Jesus is our only hope. See, because we've talked about this a lot, that the purpose of our existence is for the glory of God above all things. 
God didn't create you so that you could just be comfortable in your own skin. God didn't create us so that we could amass wealth. God didn't create us so that we could live the life we want to live. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. And he doesn't stop there, does he? For we are his workmanship created by him for good works, which he has prepared beforehand in Christ Jesus. God creates us and he saves us to do his work for his glory. And if that sounds like bondage and that sounds like bondage or that sounds cruel to you, remember the truth that we talked about last week, that our ultimate joy comes in serving and submitting to God and his leadership. So what happens when we realize the true purpose of our existence and that Jesus is our only hope? We put others before ourselves. Verse 21 is a standalone verse, and we could preach on verse 21 week in and week out. But Paul actually goes in and he explains what he means by verse 21 to us. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. In other words, if, if, I am to, if I am to live, there's work to be done and I'm going to do it. I'm going to continue doing the work. He goes on, he said, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. The two what? To live as Christ or to die as gain. He says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample example, ample example, have an ample cause. (laughs) Told you, it's all over the map. To glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I don't know if you call it that or not. Listen. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, there's work to be done, I'm going to do it. But I'm torn between the two. My ultimate desire is to part. And I want to be with Christ, for that is far better. What happens? It says, but to remain in the flesh is most necessary on your account. In other words, he's saying, my great desire is to be in the presence of my king. That's his preference. He's saying, if I die, I get heaven. I get Christ. I get to spend eternity singing his praises. No more pain. No more thorn in my flesh. No more imprisonment. I get to rejoice with my king, to my king, for my king, for all the rest of eternity. He says, but if I stay, I get to make sure many others get to experience that too. His preference, dies gain. But he knows there's still work to be done. So he knows that God's going to leave him here. And he doesn't bemoan that. And he doesn't gripe that. He says that he's going to continue doing it with joy, content, serving others. 
You've heard me mention the name George Whitfield before. If not, brief history. George Whitfield, um, British pastor in the 1700s, um, part of Awakenings, revivals in Europe and in the Americas. Um, dynamic preacher. I could go on and on with stories about how powerful of a proclaimer of God's word he was. He became one of the founders of the Methodist Church. And um, come along beside him was John Wesley. They were working together. One, uh, Whitfield was a better preacher. Wesley was a better um, administrator, kind of an organizer of things. And there come to this point where there was kind of about to be division within the church that they were building. And not just one church, they planted churches all over. But there was division amongst the Methodists like because they, they believed a little different in some areas. And so Whitfield, for the sake of Christ church, said, I'm going to hand over the reins completely to Wesley. I'm going to step back. And he had a lot of people, a lot of um, friends, a lot of advisors that warned him not to do that, because if he did that, they said that his name would be forgotten. And this is what he said in response to that. My name? Let the name of Whitfield perish if only the name of Christ be glorified. There's a, another quote that goes centuries back. Um, I don't even remember the name. It's one, a real long, kind of odd name. But the guy basically said, preach the gospel and be forgotten. How can we say that? Only when our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. So are we hopeful in Jesus so much that others would come first? That we would be willing, even like Paul would tell in his letter to the Romans, I wish myself could be a curse so that more of you could know the gospel. He was even willing to forfeit his own salvation. He knew that that wasn't possible. He said, but God, I'm willing to do that if you would just save more people. My kinsmen. A joy-filled messenger advances the gospel. And they're hopeful in Christ. And they live lives worthy of the gospel. Listen to verses 27 through 30. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. These closing verses of chapter 1 act as a sort of a charge from Paul to the Philippian church. He has stated his confidences in Christ. He has pronounced that his continued goal is the advancing of the gospel despite his suffering. And now he's telling them, now you do the same. Find hope in Christ. Find hope in God's faithfulness. Find hope in what God has done in me and know that he will do in you. So what's the charge? He gives three answers. To stand firm, to stand in unity, and to be fearless. 
Verse 27, he reminds them to stand firm. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. In other words, remain steadfast in your belief that Jesus is who he says he is and that his work is the only work that accomplishes salvation for the people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Never stop. It's worth it. It's worth the trials. It's worth the troubles. It's worth the tribulations. It's worth the persecutions and the scars and potential death to be able to stand before our King and know that all of it was true. And we get to sing praises forever. So we are called to stand firm. But he goes on, we are called to be unified. That I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you've heard me say anything over the last almost nine years, you've heard me say this. We cannot do this alone. And we are not created to. God has prepared for us to do His work by His grace, for His glory, arm in arm. We can't accomplish anything alone. We do it. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we do so in a fearless manner. He says, I'm not frightened in anything but your opponent, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In other words, don't stop. And when they try to bring you down, you don't stop. And that's going to prove to them that they are hopeless because of the work of God in you. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you also suffer for his sake. So all the times I've told you that it's scriptural, that we will suffer. It's not biblical when people are saying that we're going to avoid pain and tribulations as Christians. There it is. You will not only believe in him, but you also will suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We are created by and we are saved by God for his purpose. And he is sovereign over all things. So if there is anything worth trusting in in this life, it is in him. So hear this. Our faith must be rooted in him because we will face turbulent times. But our hope is in the Lord. So when the walls start crumbling around us and all hope seems lost, it's not. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And so a joy-filled messenger exists to advance the gospel of Jesus as a reflection of Jesus because we know that he is only the only true hope. So it doesn't matter what we go through in life. The call of the Christian is the same. 
It may play itself out differently in all of our lives and in different avenues, but the call of the Christian is the same. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that He has commanded us, and know this, that He is with us always to the very end. So may our prayer be, and may our hope be this, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in the fact that you, despite our sin, despite our unworthiness, chose to give your Son so that we may be saved. And may we be reminded over and over and over again through the promises of your word to never stop to always continue in the advancing of the gospel. Knowing that our lives are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, so we should glorify God in our bodies. Let us all, Father, arm in arm, give everything we have to declare your glory among the nations. God, if there are those here, and I'm sure there are, that have never truly trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, may today be a reminder that our only hope is in Jesus. May their hearts be awakened to the glories that Christ can save, and He will. And for the rest of us, God, You know our hearts. You know the battles we face. The storms may rage. Remind us to be still and know that you are God and that you will be exalted among the nations. And it is in Christ's sovereign and glorious name we pray. Amen.